You tell me who Bill Graham is. What do you do for a living? Primarily, I'm involved in public assemblage and the guiding of the careers of what I consider to be very fine artists, like Carlos uh, Santana and Montrose and some others. And I'm also involved in a most privileged area. I have the privilege of renting for a day this facility. I have decided to take these artists, put them on that stage, and through advertising and publicity, or the desire on the parts of other humans, I will have these people come to the same meeting place, and at a given time, these people will affect these people, and these people will affect these people. Hopefully, they will have had a good time, they will have had a good time, I will have had a good time, they spent some money, they also made some money, I made some money, nobody loses. That's a very rare privilege, and perhaps they will have learned something by a type of act that I put on that stage, not just another rock and roll act, maybe I put, down, put on Youssef Latif with Jefferson Airplane, or King Curtis with Aretha Franklin, or the Tower of Power with Miles Davis. And somebody may have said, I never heard Miles Davis before. I really came to see the headliner, but I had to see this act before. So in the end, if somebody leaves there and say, hey man, that's, that's not bad. I thought the only thing that existed was rock and roll. Hey guys, I just want to hop in here at the beginning and give some info about this episode. This is part two of our previous discussion. I don't know if you can tell I'm a little under the weather, so it's taking me a little longer to edit this one than usual. I just wanted to mention one thing that we didn't. We listen to the show and we go over some our thoughts on the show and we write the show and talk about some other things. One thing we didn't mention that I will mention now is that originally we, we do t- mention the poor Otis section that ends up making us away on the Soft Parade album on Running Blue. But I did want to mention that originally this concert, if you look at the, it was printed in black and white in the paper, ad that you can find it on the December 29th and 30th show, it shows it has Otis Redding as the as the headliner, the, the headlining name. And below it, it says, with respect for Otis Redding for Bill Graham's Fillmore East, Chuck Berry will play in place of the late Otis Redding. So, Otis Redding was originally scheduled to be on these shows and unfortunately, you know, passed away. So that's an interesting aspect of the show. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is that this was recorded on a cassette tape. You know, when you think about cassettes, there are some major door shows that recorded on cassettes, but it's a technology that I think the first commercial cassette players and recorders were released in like 63. And so by 1966, I think there are only about 250,000 in the U.S., not many then, but then I think this happened in 67. And then by 1968, I think there were 85 different manufacturers and over 2.4 million players worldwide so even though cassette tapes did sort of see their peak in the 80s late 80s you know early 90s this was recorded on cassette so that's cool i think it was a scotch brand c60 uh 60 minute tape so 30 minutes on each side got a great year of shows planned out for you i've got another show i'm going to try to release by the end of this month uh, by the end of this year i guess technically we'll see if that happens just covering the doors in december i also wanted to mention uh the, the passing of tom smothers there i'm going to post a uh and this is a few days late i think he passed away on December 26th, the day the first episode released, so I couldn't really put anything out then. But there's a great picture of him and Jim sort of sitting side by side. Jim, I think's wearing like a, a button-up shirt with like a necklace over it. Man, he was just, the, the Smothers Brothers were 
even looking now like their comedy hour there's a lot of cool stuff on there a lot of the smothers brothers like it's one of those shows that you can still watch today the smothers brothers comedy hour too i remember i think it was steve martin i remember watching his sketches on there like that was like one of my first introductions to him like him doing the magic tricks and the juggling and they had a lot of a lot of great guests of course they had the doors on their show and they were very outspoken about the vietnam war uh, hopefully we'll do an episode on them because I do plan, I think, on doing an episode on them in the coming year with a television critic who can really get into the dig into the money who's shown that. But look for that in the coming year. We got some new Miami stuff that I don't think is public knowledge yet. Releasing sometime, hopefully within the first couple of months. Let's get on to the show. I want to get into a little bit to this tra- of the tracks on this, and here's what the Doors played because I took some notes on songs, and, and as we go along, we can expand or contract on what we want to talk about on some of these. And these shows, another thing to mention, like one one show run, runs about 22 minutes with the fade-ins and fade-outs. So they open with with Backdoor Man, of course. I thought this this version of Backdoor Man is very electrifying. Jim is really belting out full-throated screams. Uh, he's got the great maniacal laugh. You know, he's become known for it. I don't know why I've always really found that maniacal Jim laugh just, I don't know. He, he does it on unknown soldier, but it's very haunting. I don't know, man. It's, it's creepy. I, I like it. I dig it though. Yeah. It's interesting. I think when we listen to these doors shows, it's like, yeah, it's one thing to listen to a version of break on through or soul kitchen, but it's these very short sections in songs like backdoor man in the midsection where, you know, something's going to come in. Or in music's over in that midsection where you know if there's ever a time where something different's going to come in, that's where it is. And that's the liminal space that Morrison operates in, those little grooves, those little vamping sections and that Densmore comments on in the critique special where he says, you know, we get into a free section and that's when we improvise. And even if it's just a crazy laugh, I think what is so engaging about it is not it's yeah it's the performances themselves but it's the anticipation of something different because you it's not just us that's anticipating something as the listener it's the band too you can tell when the band is playing and knowing where they're going like when they're playing a solo section or when they're playing the verse of light my fire morrison from what i can recall never has missed a cue in light my fire he miscues in break on through and you can hear them searching for what the hell is coming next in the live recording from Boston in 1970 where Morrison doesn't come in and they enter uncharted waters in what would otherwise be a very tightly structured section of the song. But those midsections where they, they are accustomed to improvising, they always sound fresh because the band themselves is waiting to see what's going to happen, even if they're just vamping on that little groove. And that's why I think makes The Doors such an electrifying band. It's it's the interpersonal relationships between all four of them that they're waiting on Morrison to either sing, make something up, you know, just to see what he's going to do. That's what makes them so electrifying. Yeah, and that's a word I used a lot throughout here because I opened it with electrifying performance. Talked about the maniacal laugh. He improvised this falsetto section with some very copulative talk, reminiscent of Gloria later on, you know, the 
this is almost very Miami-esque, you know, nearly a, a year and a half before Miami. He, he says a lot of things, and we'll talk about it like uh, before break on through. Come on, baby, feel my thing. You understand. And come on, baby, I love you. You're my girl before in the middle of when the music's over. It, it's just interesting, like some of the some of the things like he drops in that you don't really think about until you have the foresight of hearing Miami. And you think, you know, there's that's a bit that he said in Miami. It's, it's very interesting. That's a similar bit in July 68 as well at the Coliseum. In Houston, he does this "Feel My Hand," you know, yeah. and then it makes a bunch of sounds, and he says something vaguely sexual, and you can hear a woman in the audience reacting. She says, "Oh Lord," and she starts laughing. Yes, yeah, because he makes all these suggestive, sexually suggestive sounds, and and it's easy to forget that, like nowadays, it's it would be incredibly cringe, but back in 1967, 68. I mean, yeah, we talk about the sexual revolution and liberation of sexuality, but this is like in the beginning of that. Yeah. You know, so being sexual, Morrison's just his presence on stage by today's standards would be, I think you would you would say it's cringeworthy and almost like he's full of himself because he sidles up to the mic stand, puts it between his legs, sort of rides it a bit. It's vaguely sexual the way he put his foot on that the base of that stand and almost put his crotch up to the pole. Yeah, but nowadays you would it wouldn't be meaningful like it was then. I think just his image and his suggestions of sexuality were not only maybe confronting, but you know, arousing even. It's weird too. Like he, we, you know, we talk about this during that backdoor man. He even gives like this growly noise, and he gives like a low growly, like, and the crowd laughs at it. Like it's it's almost like a a cat and mouse game, like a he's looking for reaction and sometimes they just don't give him the reaction he wants, I guess, but it ends solidly break on backdoor man ends solidly. And he yells, yay at the, you know, right at the end of that to sort of exclaim. But here's one thing I did want to talk about was light my fire. This, this intro, it starts really slow. Tell me what you think. It starts real slow. I think John's trying to pull him in rhythm. Yeah. Robbie really kicks it in and he picks it up here. They're still not quite there right now, though. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think Ray starts the song, you know, and he starts it a little slower. And that was the funky intro that developed. That's the funky intro that developed that they abandoned after a while. And I think you can hear it at some other shows too. Yeah. But I think that's that's just Ray starting slow, you know. And the Doors didn't, the Doors were a band of, you know, a vibey band. They followed their own energy and they do quite a slow version of, Break on through at the Isle of Wight Festival and in yeah. Detroit too, but that song could be quite pacey at times. Yeah, another and a couple of other notes I, th- I have that this was a high energy. This is a very high energy take on the song. Yeah. 
you know, they get real quiet during the, during the don't fight it portion. We talked about that. And hey, another, another good thank you. Come on at the end of the song. And then they go into when the music's over. Come on, baby. I love you. You're my girl. He says at the beginning, a great deep register scream at the open of the song. I always love hearing these at the beginning because this is the greatest door song ever. Okay, now you, uh, Travis, you're going to write this scream for me whenever you hear it. Scale of one to ten. Yeah, I read it. It's like a croony scream because he he screams, but he, there's a note to it, and then he soars, and then he goes ah at the end. Seven yeah, he sounds half pissed. I like it. He's kind of half drunk. I give it a seven out of ten. I think there's better, but I don't think this is one of the worst ones. I, I, I really no, like not it. at all. It's a, definitely a good soaring scream. I um, mean, if you compare that to the Hollywood Bowl, where they replaced his scream yeah. with the one well, one of the screams from Boston, which was. An Very odd choice. Month, yeah. I yeah. Hey, which maybe speaking of yeah, maybe that can fix some of the uh some of that Hollywood Bowl show with some of the, the audience tapes floating around. Well yeah, you could really make a, a compilation. You can make a banger, couldn't you? You really could. He he of course says the fucker in the ass part as he sort of sporadically does. I'm really not sure what the genesis of that is or Jim vulgarity for Jim's sake. But I always love this part. Great screams during the keyboard guitar explosions. You know, Robbie seems really into it this night. A played up vocal performance for the Alive She Cried section. I feel like he he, he just was really angsty. Screaming, Densmore is pounding the crash symbols. I mean, it's raised carving it up. They're all they're all intensely playing. Which it's not a polite version of the song. No, and and even the yearn like I, I put he was yearning during the what have they done to the earth portion, like love that man i love this yeah i mean i think this is morrison at like the perfect level of drunk because i i i believe that he is at his best when he's had a bit to drink but not too much you know he's in a good mood you can tell that he's half pissed for sure yeah it's great and the band is going off its tits listen to those drums he's that's what makes the doors so good 
he's just Densmore's being fed by Morrison. You know, that's what happens in this band. Yeah. Which and- is why Seattle, take you fast forward to something like Seattle, June 5, 70, where like Morrison's energy is way down. And the, but the band is like in their own world playing this super tight version of everything. Yeah. And it's not reactive and it's not like explosive. It's just contained. And that's why everyone thinks it's boring because Morrison is boring and the band is not, the band is operating in this range, you know? But at the Winterland, yeah. they're operating in this range. There's quiet and then f- loud yeah. and explosions and, and then silence and, they're operating in that massive sense of dynamic and it comes from Morris. That's why all the instrumentals post Morrison were just instrumentals not that, with, with very yeah, subpar vocals. Yeah. Because even with Morrison there, it's just like him being there feeds them in a way. That's, that's how sensitive they all were to each other. Yeah. And even, and I think this is also like the perfect level, not only of Jim's performance, but the playfulness he has, uh, you know, right here he goes, he got, he hit, gets ready to do the part. And I think sometimes like in Boston, he waited like an obscenely, an obscene amount of time. And it's sort of like, you know, okay, that's a little too long, but here he's like the back and forth, you know, ready. We do want it. Don't we? We did. No, I'm serious. We want it. You know, he, he says that I really thought that was a good part and I'm not going to drag all this out. I love this version when the music's over. So I just wanted to highlight it a little bit more. We won't go through, you know, bit by bit of every single song, but this is such a good, great track. We did. I'm serious. We do want it. Scream right here. I have a note here. Ray is very punchy on the keys during this rendition.
So there's this hilarious part where the taper, George, he says, he like is singing with the song. He says, and he sings when the tape is over. And he like sings it to them. He says, well, like, hey, man, y'all need to wrap this up. I'm running out of tape. And he mentions having to go to work tomorrow. Let me see if I can, you can hear it. Maybe you can't. He's about to sing it right now. He just said it. When the tape is over. That's basically it. I did want to hit just hear the, the crowd reaction to this is electric and the ending is great. Let me hear it. Great reaction. Great. Maybe the best rendition ever recorded. Maybe a step out on that, but man. It's a passionate one. It's been a long time since I've heard heard this show, to be honest. So it's really nice to hear it again. And I noticed this the We Want the World scream there is very similar to the studio version. It's just like a yeah. more ramped up version of the studio one. And I love the slightly disjointed nature when they enter into the musical climax there. And Morrison is screaming and he reverses the lines, uh, see the light, Persian night. And then Ray sort of anticipates the three against four rhythm. Densmore kicks in with the roll and then they go for it. And that to me is almost always one of the more dramatic points of every Doors set. The the keyboard there, it's very classical, I think, what he's playing. And, and the line that Ray is playing, that do, 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 do. When Morrison is doing the poor Otis dead and gone, yeah, that line, that little, that little chordal run, reminds me a lot of the line he plays in, I think, a version of the end where Morrison is doing names of the kingdom. It's either it's either the Danbury High School version or Santa Clara. I can't recall. But he does names of the kingdom. 
Uh, I think he also he does something during Backdoor Man in Santa Clara, which is pretty good. It's just these little Rayisms, you know, these things that Ray does, and yeah. you hear them throughout, throughout this, throughout the songs, throughout their history. I love that. I think it's so good. I'll try to graze over some of this here. We don't necessarily have to hear close to you. I'm a man, but I do always. One positive note: I do always love hearing Jim's background vocals on Ray songs. Uh, that's always a bright spot of it. And I bet this song was probably as close as you could get. I know there's probably something else. This was just sort of my supposition here. Uh, I'll take this with a big grain of salt, but I bet this song was probably as close as you could get to like being in Ray's apartment, you know, with him just when it was just him and Jim and he took Jim under his wing, you know, and them singing together. Cause when I picture that, you know, I, and when he's first starting out, I picture Ray singing and him sort of teaching Jim the, Hey, here's the rhythm, you know, we got to start out. Cause from what I've gathered and maybe this is some of this I've conjured in my own brain, reading all the stuff that I've read and hearing all the Ray interviews, it seems a lot like Ray really gave him like a crash course in music during that time and was like, hey, here's the vocal harmonies. Here's the parts you hit and stuff, you know, and what to, to what extent that's true, I don't know. But it's just I always- think that's a fair, fair thing to say. I would have thought the same thing. But we mentioned the derailing of Close to You always happens. <laughs> a heckler, and then during I'm a Man, a heckler responds to one of the call and response portions with a no, very emphatically, to Ray singing. I really love Hendrix's version of this song. If anybody wants to hear an I'm a Man cover, Hendrix does a pretty solid version. Still probably not the best vocals ever, but I think he, Jimmy is, is amazing on that. Can move into Light My Fire. Let's let's hear it. Let's see what we got. Skip to the solo just because uh, I want to hear the solo that Ray does. I got great solo by Ray's one.
have Robbie playing here too. I do too, yeah. Okay, before we get into Robbie's solo, I will say I felt, so I said this was a repetitive solo by Ray, but I want to hear if you hear this. So I, Jim gives like an all right, yeah, yeah, and a sort of low grumble, and then Robbie launches in solo, but it's very subdued, and it's almost like he drops the notes at the end of, e, of certain expressions to begin with, and it ends on sort of the weaker side to me. And so much so that it even sounds like Ray tries to pick back up at the end of it to maybe sensing it and vamps a little solo before Robbie sort of comes underneath with some slight finger picking to, I don't know. It, it's not as fluid as I guess it would be in 70 on the Roadhouse Blues tour. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm implying too much from this. I'll, I'll play it and you just. I'm keen to hear this solo now. Uh, and of course I think Ray's solo I thought was really good. And it's really interesting to hear how energetic it was and Robbie's comping and that you can imagine his hand just scratching and going hard over the fretboard there with all of that rhythmic playing that he does. And some of it was kind of, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it was kind of dissonant and a little bit not off key, but sort of off rhythm. maybe Jazzy, I guess, you know, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. Now let's see. Maybe, and maybe I'm, I'm way off on this. I don't know. Just, we'll listen to Robbie Solo. You tell me what you think. Almost like he missed his cue.
almost gives like a second solo. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ray Ray does that pretty commonly. He definitely did it. He did that in in London as well. Yeah. But yeah, that Robbie solo, it's sort of like he you normally he takes the time to execute those lines and flow into the next one. But in this case, he sort of starts late, finishes early, blends it into the next bit. It's almost like he's rushing. Yeah. And maybe that's because he missed like he missed like the first two or three bars where he's supposed to. Yeah, he definitely, definitely either missed his cue or Densmore anticipated him coming in, but then he doesn't. Yeah. You can hear a big crack from John and then nothing happens. Yeah. Now there's the audience sort of tries the slow clap. The slow clap often does not work, you know. <laughs> I love I love audiences like some of the, some of the times it's interesting to hear Jim Morrison's very emphatic as they launch back into it, and I have Jim finishes strong with an almost yell before ending it with a more vocal refrain of "Try to set the night on fire." Yeah. So overall, man, I think that first show is a, a great performance. Mm, I think so. It was a cracker a version of Light My Fire. At least to begin with, Morrison's vocal was really nice. I wasn't convinced by that, the final chorus there, to be honest. But, I mean, he's probably drunk and energetic by that point. So you can sort of forgive a little hoarseness or a bit of yelling, I think. The, the Ray tracks, give or take, you know, we didn't play a lot of those, but not terrible for what they are going into the 28th show. The, the other set we do, this is only 22 minutes. So not as much to go on here for the second set. I'm a song very straightforward as always backdoor man. He gives this slight falsetto woo at the beginning. I thought was interesting, uh, but I had strong vocals. Uh, great. All right. Yeah. And I said, this was the best backdoor man. solo solo Robbie's ever performed. I hate that the That's tape good. cut, out so soon what what was this solo as good as i'm is am i overstating the the power of the solo you think probably I'll stand by that statement. I think that was a right, damn That is a good solo. They're playing really slow, but the pitch doesn't sound off. It just sounds slow, don't you think? Yeah, and this is the other. This, so this is actually the other voices version, the the one Avery uh, mixed. It, there's a slight speed adjustment and EQ he did to this. So 
Yeah, I, I do that think from Chris's channel. No, this is not on Chris's channel. Do you? Would you want me to play the one on Chris's channel to compare them? The second version that we played there sounded a little bit quicker. The first one felt felt slower to me. I think. Okay. Well, we we well, I will keep rolling with this version because I want to hear this version of your lost little girl and I think a great one. I love and I, this is a door song that I I don't like. If it's it's not one that would definitely necessarily make a hey, this is on my doors playlist. I listen to on repeat, but it's one that when I hear it, I think, damn, this is a good song. I don't give this song enough, you know. Yeah. I think it's really good. Almost sounds like if you, if it was a better quality, almost sounds identical to me to the album version, man. I think Vor- Morrison's vocals are spot on on that. Oh yeah. He's definitely spot on. I mean, he's, he's not, he's not fucking around. The weird thing about this on love me two times, I felt like he had a weak, weaker vo- vocal performance. He really trails off at the end of phrases. He has a great scream around the, the solo uh, but he and he almost saves it at the end, but we get that cut off, and I hate that we miss the ending. But the the just a little bit here of. You hear what I'm talking about, though? He's sort of like, 
he he's not on the melody of the song, and he's just sort of yeah. Um, me one. Like it's like it's like um, one dun. Like he does that sometimes, but it's almost like they're he maybe disinterested in the song. I'm not sure, but he does save it at the end. I think it was before the cut. Mess up a little bit. Hate we get that fade out because I th- it really picks it up there, man. And I think it- yeah, Robbie's playing some additional licks, sort of like in the earlier part of the song. He plays a couple of bends there that you don't normally hear. You know, it sounds yeah. like they're sort of still feeling it almost. I think by this stage they recorded it and released it, but it's an early version. I th- almost it sounds early. And I love, I love, love, love. Um, this you know this version of wake up i always love wake up into light my fire the the juxtaposition of the courting that they oh, do yeah. and we won't play the all of wake up but i just i do want to hear that transition just one good time Jim's vocals are not as good here, I don't think, but uh, I think everybody else is a little better. I'm a little being a little too harsh on Jim listening back to it. Ray and Robbie, though, I do think their solos are so amazing. They're very, they're a lot more complimentary. If that, when you hear them, you'll understand, I guess, more. Like Robbie's d- doing a lot more under Ray's solos that really color it in a different light, I guess, than usual. And it almost, for a moment, seems like they, they run two of them, uh, the, you know, it's like almost like the two of them just run everybody else off stage. Like it's just the two of them there. Of course, John's keeping track and sometimes it's harder to get the drums in them in this mix. But, uh, yeah.
Oh yeah, much more energetic than the other version. Yeah, and I think even Jim adds a little bit of the uh, the when the music's over in here. I guess they didn't, they're not going to play it tonight, so he's going to add it in right here. Persian night, babe. See the light, babe. he picked all of his moments and he arrived at every sort of different milestones you know yeah and he almost does my favorite things but like ah. it's more uh, hammer-ons and pull-offs I, th- I thought it was a good version though the audience ends up clapping along in somewhat unison <laughs> I always love audience claps because uh, I'm sure band band members do too um, Jim, Jim with the tambourine probably doesn't help a whole lot. Um, and then just the the unknown soldier, which I thought was a very great version. I would say it it has cuts in it as well. I do want to pick up just right after this will be the last little bit here. Right after this part, the you hear Jim counted in. Your hollow shoulder. 
good car break at the end. He's got a very late show with David Letterman kind of vibe about it. Yeah. Man, um, so we we probably listened more to the show than I really originally planned to. And this is gonna a long episode and I but I still know there's probably some stuff we didn't cover. But oh, I mean I d I don't know what, what it would be, but I'm sure there's something that, that's out there that we haven't covered. But I guess to wrap things up, man, we've listened to the shows, we've walked through them, we've talked through them, talked about the taping. I don't think there's any stone left unturned unless you have something that you think we haven't mentioned. How cut is the unknown soldier there, just to recap? They, we get the end of it. Do we miss a bit at the beginning? It sort of cuts in through breakfast where the news is read. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think so. Let me oh. let me make sure, though. I'm, I'm almost positive it does. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's cut in. I mean, what a great recording in general. You know, we got those slow versions of Love Me Two Times. That's a slow version of Love Me Two Times, I think. Everything is performed a little slow. Yeah. Break on through slow in the early set. You know, I think this is the doors at their peak, you know, and everything from 1968. I think everything from 1968 is inferior to 67 in a way. Although I love those shows, I think there's something about Morrison, the the band's vibe, as you know, like grows and continues to change throughout their whole career. And although I still think like Dallas from 1970 is one of my favorite sets, like it's not the same band we're listening to here at the Winterland. No. And it's not it's not even the same band we're listening to in Dallas of 1968, in July of 68. Like it's not even the same band again. And Doors go through these distinct phases and different stages, you know. We need more shows from this period because they are at their peak. It's a group with a, uh, I mean, even now, they're still a group that even though they've had a hit song, you know, they still seem like they have a chip on their shoulder, man. You know, the 67 Doors were still fulfilling these obligations, you know, at Danbury High School and uh, that was when they played the University of Michigan, right, and had the whole incident with Iggy Pop there, that they yeah. that they were con- contractually obligated to still perform at, even though they're they're this big time group, you know. I don't know, man. Like they're still, everything's fresh. Like, like it's almost like before. I mean, Strange Days is released in September, but it's still sort of the. I don't I don't know how to explain it. Like those first two albums are their, you know, their freshman and sophomoric albums here that they're still finding themselves strange days is considered their greatest album if they're fresh off what many consider their greatest album so of course they're going to sound amazing and if you look at like something like we mentioned earlier or mentioned i think in in another episode the la forum shows they play a lot from soft parade but soft parade material doesn't fly as well as this early you know this early and late 67 stuff and even because even the people who maybe haven't heard some of the stuff, it's still, I don't know when the music's over such an iconic track. Like when you think about what from each album, what made the cut going forward when the music's over, they're still playing that in 70, you know, they don't play break yeah. on through every show. They play when the music's over almost every show and on that roadhouse blues tour. I'm sure there's probably a show they don't play it on from like the Aquarius theater to ending maybe in like Seattle or something. Um, I was just trying to think right offhand, but not, if any, not many of them don't include when the music's over, which is weird because it's a long song, 
but you don't get yeah. many. They're not the shelf life for the soft parade songs are relatively short. You know. Yeah, I I'm struggling to think of any show where they don't perform when the music's over. Like it seems like they're always performing it. Yeah, and we, I mean, we don't have it in one of these shows, of course, and maybe it was done, just not recorded. But that being said, there's a, a sort of, I don't know, Strange Days seems such like a fresh album to them. And it it's like the only, I would say that Strange Days is like the only other album besides the first album where they still have enough material that they don't have to lay, you know, laboriously try to come up with something, you know. And maybe yeah. maybe that's where they, they're not as, I mean, they had six consecutive gold records, you know, or seven consecutive gold records, and six of those were platinum. So I'm not saying that, hey, obviously they did well for themselves, but there's a magic to those first few songs that were already so developed, such developed ideas that Jim had had in his notebooks that didn't have to be thought up on the spot, you know, for a new album or anything. I don't know. Yeah, they had time to develop all those songs. Yeah, I've never, Strange Days has never been like my favorite album, but every time I listen to it, I'm always blown away by all those songs because the majority there's a lot of that early doors in there. Yeah. And it's so punchy. And I think the production quality has that great balance between like they've used the studio as an instrument, but you can also perform the arrangements live. Like, sure, there's mm-hmm. a couple of backwards piano moments or whatever, but on the whole, it's just punchy production. And it and they could it all translated to a concert. It's another weird thing about this though. This is sort of how I was thinking through this. So after Strange Days is waiting for the sun, and that's like the they they still record in Sunset Sound some, but they also go to TTG Studios and record part of that. And then after that, they move exclusively to Electra Sound Recorders for the next two albums until they you know record LA Woman in their workshop. But these first two albums are really the only two core albums that they record at, at Sunset Sound, which is sort of gives it like this quaint feel to it, you know. Maybe Yeah, but remember that Rock is Dead was recorded at Sunset Sound as well, was it not? It very well could have been. Yeah. That that the anomaly, which and that's in like February of sixty nine. Yeah. And did we just come up with an anomaly here? Just looking at the soft parade. Was it all recorded at Electra, even as far back as Wild Child and Touch Me? Well, uh, Wild Child and Wishful Sinful, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was all recorded at Electra. I guess my point, my overall, that's interesting though, but my overall point was, I guess, that the the quaintness of that studio for those two first two albums, and even even if Soft Parade, some Soft Parade was performed, you know, at uh, Sunset Sound, or, or even Waiting for the Sun, I think, was, but they both don't have the feel that, Strange Days in the debut does, and I don't know what exact how. I, I mean, I know why Strange, why Soft Parade doesn't. I'm not sure why Waiting for the Sun doesn't. Like, what quantifies it not feeling like that? If that makes sense. But that that first year, maybe in that year we had a great uh, intense visitation of energy. I think that's what '67 was for them, man. I think '66 they're cutting their teeth, you know, and '67 it uh, it all comes to fruition, man. The band is flowing, and you get some amazing shows. I don't doubt, you know, I'd still love to probably hear the Fillmore East shows over anything else they they did. But here, these bootlegs we have that George so uh, graciously, I'm so ha- happy that he caught these. We hear a band 
there's highs and lows, of course. But the highs are really high, and the lows, you know, aren't that bad. As They're definitely not as low as they could be, you know. So overall, this yeah. is a show I could see myself, considering top 10, sh- I don't know, of all the recorded shows ever, uh, maybe top 15 shows ever recorded. I don't know. You, you they were among the first shows that I ever got on tape. They were very early, early shows for me because – I liked the set list and I was told the quality would be good, so I swapped for those. I think they're essential shows from the doors at their peak. There are more interesting 67 tapes. Like if you get onto that Santa Clara show, you yeah. hear like names of the kingdom being put inside Backdoor Man and there's some interesting lyrics inside of the end at that show. And, you know, you get to Dan- Danbury Auditorium and they're playing – a version of that's basically this like celebration of the lizard contained within the end. And it's really hard to hear, but he's also yelling some lyrics from not to touch the earth in there towards the musical climax of the end as well. So there's all these little things where the doors were experimenting with new ideas, always within those jam songs. And we don't hear a lot of that in the winterland, you know, there's, there's mostly just hearing them play the, good versions of their song. But Morrison certainly sounds invested. And for me, that's an unfortunate benchmark of a Doors concert because a lot of the time he sounds bored or like he's sort of just going through the motions or even if he does have moments of inspiration, there's, I like it when he's a train wreck and I like it when he's drunk enough to be into it. And sometimes Morrison is just boring, you know? I get you. Or bored. Sometimes he just sounds so and bored and like that Bakersfield show oh my god I don't know how people love that show I think it drags so much but there are moments of you know again with moments of inspiration I will I will say of these shows give me that that first the 20 the 26th give me that version of when the music's over against any other version it's hard to beat man that 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 mournful the 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 somber sound in his voice at times the the inflections give me that version of when the music's over probably against any version I'm sure there's better versions m- possibly but that that version sounds amazing and and it of course recency bias plays into this and re-listening these tapes over and over again recently that could play into this but I don't know there's something about that version that has stuck with me since I've re-listened to it. I've still been thinking about today, just on and off and throughout the day. I don't know that version when the music's over, just the the inflection in his voice that you don't hear. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I'm at the point now where I'd skip a version of when the music's over if I got a new recording, and I you don't always listen to it from beginning to end. You might skip straight to like the one song that you know something interesting is going to happen, or yeah. the one song that you've not heard, like when Cleveland circulated in. 2017 or whenever it was on the audience tape preservation channel you know there was an electric version of when will the circle be unbroken and robbie's playing slide guitar and i skipped straight to that uh, because i had to hear that you know and then i went back and listened to the 30 minute version of when the music's over and was completely mind-numbingly disappointed in how drunk and annoying it was yeah so yeah i think you know when morrison's delivering good vocal and he's interested and he's he's captivating the audience and he's playing with them a little bit um that makes for a a a tape worth multiple listens 
it's not just a morbid curiosity by that point. It's, but I also love the version in Miami because it's so mad. Yeah, it's it's like it's the the two ends of the spectrum. Either you want a either you want a version of a song so good and so intense and and just a great overall performance because you want to hear it, or you or if it's a bad performance, you want it so painfully bad and such a train wreck that it's almost like a spectacle to watch and there's no really in between like and i think that's what the doors saw in at the isle of white festival even though i think it was a solid show a lot they saw it as jim not being jim because he didn't move enough you know he didn't perform enough for them for their liking and i think that's you know the we could get in the whole bigger picture of maybe that's what caused Jim to leave the band and what, what goes into what, but that's just my two cents on that, man. I I think when they're good, they're good. When they're mediocre, they're not good. But when they're so terribly bad, that it's a train wreck. They're the best (laughs) or not the best, but you almost want to hear it even more, which I think is what the appeal of new Orleans is, man. I mean, there's a appeal to new Orleans and I think even some, there's, I know there's more appeal now to New Orleans since the whole tape was like, hey, it's only like 20 minutes or whatever. And then it came, it came up to like a whole set list. Like there's more appeal now. But like almost if there wasn't like the 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 curiosity, like why would people say this? Like if you're like, hey, would you rather see like a 30-minute train wreck of the doors or would you rather see like an hour and a half train wreck of the doors? You're almost like, man, I, I'm sure that the hour and a half train wreck drags. Give me the 30-minute dra- you know, train wreck. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Like, if it was such a bad show, why did it go on so long? And yeah, how bad could it really be? What if it's just another Bakersfield with like, a, with like a yeah, little train wreck at the end? I mean, it could be a very awkward performance. I'm predicting that it could be very awkward. Yeah, and maybe one day we'll get to hear it. But you know, something that wasn't a train wreck. I I really enjoyed this show, man. I think. I think this is a solid A show, I would say. It's one that I would re-listen to. Um, I hate that we only got 22 minutes of that last one. And we we had eight minutes of Chuck Berry ding-a-ling that took up some of that. We could have got something else with that. but yeah, Those eight minutes could have given us a complete version of Love Me Two Times, Your Lost Little Girl, and The Unknown Soldier. <laughs> You're not kidding. All that being said, any last thoughts about this, Travis? They are solid shows. There's something uneventful about them. Like there is no train wreck. There is no poetry. There's a little bit of an insert with uh, poor Otis, you know, but but I think the magic of these shows just lies in their reliability and and how much energy the band and Morrison are putting in and and just how how invested they are in their performance. You know, they're on that stage and nowhere else. No one's thinking about being anywhere else. No one's doing anything other than performing the absolute fuck out of those songs. And that, you know, and that shows, I think. And thankfully, the recording quality is very clear. You know, I don't agree with Greg and Ava, Greg and Len that the first generation sound better. I think the first generation tapes were heavily compressed. And actually, you don't hear the the ambience of the room as much. I think there may be a little bit more bottom end in in those first gens because they're compressed and the top end is shaved off a bit. And you don't hear you don't hear the the breath of the auditorium as much. 
But in the Masters, like maybe Greg is right when he said years ago that the the tapes could have aged and some of the bottom end might have been lost. But, you know, I think it's more likely that you lose top end frequencies first. And even so, you know, you can really hear the room breathing. I, I think there's nothing to dislike about those master clones. There's nothing to dislike. And the piano bass was always kind of farting anyway. You can hear in Backdoor Man, it's really, it's really distorted. It has been on every version of that tape, but the amplifiers are being pushed. And they didn't have a, a bass, they didn't have a subwoofer or a dedicated bass speaker mm-hmm. yet. So that's just going through the acoustic amps. Yeah, that's one of the things looking back on like Hendrix's uh, stage, like people like Hendrix who took so much pride in the equipment they used. He used Marshall amps, you know, really pushing it out where the doors, I think, went with acoustic amps because they sponsored them pretty much. And, and acoustic, acoustic amps really weren't good, you know. They don't. I don't know that some of that, some of those shows, I feel like could have been a lot better. And Robbie's guitar tone just always. I mean, he could have done so much more with it. And I understand he's a flamenco guitarist. There's a whole. That's a whole different conversation. But I, overall, with the equipment they used, great shows, man. And I really appreciate you coming on and spending the better part of four hours with me. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, talking about just random door stuff. I'm sure you'll be back again, uh, probably against your own free will, but <laughs> maybe one day we'll talk about New Orleans when it comes out in a couple months. Yeah, when they release the master clone of New Orleans in a couple of months, we'll do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a podcast on it. Um, Get which, all the classified information. Yeah, completely. Uh, we have no clue about what's happening with that. But it just always comes back New Orleans. All roads new lead to New Orleans if you uh, drive far enough. I, I actually I don't think any Australian roads do. So, and I can tell you, there's one road that leads to New Orleans in Australia, and it's deep in the recesses of my mind. It's been leading to New Orleans for years. Well, I hope your wife is okay with this four-hour session. Uh, we're about to find out. <laughs> uh, Travis, man, thank you so much. We'll we'll holler at you later, man. Thanks, Brad. Thank you again to Travis Williamson. You can find Travis's YouTube channel, Mr. Good Trips, M-R-G-O-O-D-T-R-P-S, on YouTube. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching for Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Corneo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. Hope to meet you back here, but until then, keep the doors open and the music loud.